Wow, what an amazing introduction that is. It is true. Lucas uh, was leaving as I was coming into Scottsdale. In fact, he gave me all of his staff shirts. I still have them. I'm keeping care of them. And uh, maybe I'll bring them back for you someday. I, I do apologize. I, I am an Ontario boy. I'm a Canadian boy. And I did defect from our country. And I intermarried with their people and uh, interbred with them. All of that. And, uh, but we're trying to reach the Americans for Jesus. That's what we're trying to do. In fact, Scottsdale Bible Church has four venues that meet on a given weekend, and three, I kid you not, three of the venue pastors are from Canada. So it's like a three-for-one deal in the trade, and uh, you guys got Lucas, and uh, I guess it would take just one American. We're going to try to Canadianize you as much as we can, and uh, so it's great, but it's a real honor and a privilege to be here. I actually uh, just coerced Lucas into having me come up because I miss ketchup potato chips like you would not believe. They do not have them down there. And I miss, I, I miss Tim Horton's coffee, and so, uh, you know, I might have to stop and use the facilities partway through because I'm enjoying it so much, and it's good to be back here. Uh, and I really do feel honored to be here. I've been, a, as Lucas said, I've been a pastor for 30 years. It goes by so fast. Uh, I've been a, a follower of Christ uh, for 43 years at a little church in London, Wortley Baptist Church is where I came to know uh, the Lord. And when I started this whole thing as a, as a young boy, I was so excited like some of you were when it comes to following God. I mean, I thought, wow, there's a creator and he made all of this. And I began to be hungry for the Bible and so I'd open it up and begin to read it. But it's a lot of reading in here. So I try to look for like the, the short version of this, right? Like the Coles Notes or something you can get to go through this really fast. And I'd pull out verses that I thought were really cool. Verses like, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. I thought that was a cool verse. In fact, it was on a plaque that sat on my nightstand for many, many years. And then I found other verses like Psalm 37, 4. Do some of you know that Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, scripture's getting cool. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you, basically I was reading it to say, whatever you wanted. He'll give you what I'm like, I'm in. And so I took that verse, and I took the other plaque and put it down, but I put that one up on my nightstand on a 3 by 5 card. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Uh, I think of John 10.10, 10, another passage where Jesus himself says, the thief comes in the night to steal and to destroy. He said, but I have come that they might have life, some of you know this, right, and life more abundantly. That's pretty cool. Or live life to the full. Or as one translation said, that I have come that they might have life and really live. Now I'm taking off. This Christian thing is pretty cool. I kind of like this Bible thing as I took little verses after little verses out of context and, and kind of spun it in a way that I thought relating to God was all about having an amazing life. Have you been there? Maybe some of you are there right now thinking, man, yeah, this is what I'm all about. You fast forward a few years, you get married, you have kids, and then those kids get older. you got something to look forward to here, Lucas. Come crawl on my shoulder. You know, they become teenagers, and they don't kind of, you know, their mother was a really bad influence on them. I was really good with my mom. And man, all of a sudden, life starts tumbling and banging around, and the, the, the wheels start to come off the tracks a little bit, and it starts to shake, and you wonder, wait a minute, what happened to the abundant life? Have you been there? You ever asked that question? What happened to, to getting the desires of my heart? I didn't sign up for this. And you begin to realize that maybe, maybe I need to go back and, and read this again 
in its context. And it's true. And so as I went back in the Bible, I began to see that, yes, indeed, God does promise to give us an abundant life. But it's not the way that Neil Montgomery defines abundant life. It's actually the way God defines it. And by the way, I'm learning that it's actually a better way. I'm learning, it's only been about the last five years that I'm starting to agree with the psalmist who said, taste and see that the Lord is good. But it comes as you grow and go through life. If you brought a Bible, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 73. I I love inspiration. And there's a guy who wrote this song, right? It's a song. He writes this song, and I think he could write it today. And in that song, he's kind of relating the way that I relate or bemoaning the way that I bemoan sometimes. Because I can whine at times and many times whine toward God. And and Psalm uh, 73 begins like this. The writer says, truly God is good to Israel. That's a nice beginning to a song. He is good to those who are pure in heart. It's a great, he's a song leader. Asaph is the guy who wrote this. Bible tells us a little bit about Asaph. He was a a chief. So he is a leader of the nation of Israel. Historians would tell us that he probably led about between 400 and 800 individuals. He played the cymbals. He was able to sing. He was the Andy Cherry of the nations of God's church. He was the guy. That's a big deal. And so he starts off with this beautiful song, Truly God is Good. Who wouldn't want to sing that to those who are pure in heart? And then you you put a word you never want to put in a chorus. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Wow. Here's the leader, a huge leader in the nation of Israel. And he is struggling in a way that none of us would want to admit, much less sing about it in front of people. And why is he struggling? He tells us right out of the gate that he's looking horizontally, not vertically. He's looking around at everybody else, and he sees what they have, and he's frustrated. He's looking around at people who are living life however they want, and they actually seem to be getting away with it. Can you relate to Asaph in the song that he's writing? You're trying to walk this Christian life. You're trying to obey these 66 books. There's 31,000, more than 31,000 verses in here. Man, this is really, really hard. I'd rather put it down, and people are living however they want, and they're getting away with it. When this book tells me that it's Christian people, followers of Christ, who are supposed to be enjoying life. And so we read about Asaph and the struggle that he had. You can find out more about him in, in 1 Chronicles 16. You can read that a little bit later. But he was a man of great position and a man who was wrestling and he was a leader. Pastors get this. You know, it's so hard to stand in front of people as a pastor. We've got to seem like we have it all together. But pastors struggle too. Pray for your leaders as they battle some of the things that Asaph battled. He goes on in in verse 4 and look where the song goes. He says these words, for they, meaning the people he's looking horizontally at, the people who don't really care about God, they have no pangs until death at least it seems. Their bodies are fat, and that's not like Canadian fat. It it actually, NIV says they're healthy. They're fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And so Asaph is saying, do you understand how hard it is to live life the right way? I look all around me. You look all around you. There are people that cheat on their taxes. Anybody here cheat on their taxes? No, nobody would admit that here, right? 
But sometimes we justify it. We look, you know, hey, look, they're doing it. They're getting away with it. Hey, everybody's doing it. Sometimes we spiritualize it. Sometimes we say, well, if I keep money from the government, I can make Bayview Glen a strong church with the extra $1.95 or $2 that I have to give. And we justify doing it because everybody else is doing it. I remember the summer before I got married, um, one of the things that the Bible gives us is a standard of how to live. It's perfection. And that kind of ticks people off because nobody can do it. But God designed it that way, that we can't live holy as he is holy. And that's why he provided a new way. That's what it's all about. Asaph is starting to realize there's a different way. There's a different perspective. And so God's ideal when I was dating my soon-to-be wife was that we would remain pure, sexually pure. That's really tough in a decadent world like North America and Canada. That's really difficult when you're dating somebody who's stunning and beautiful. It's difficult as a young man when God says, yeah, nah, uh, uh. I'm like, man, you're just a killjoy. And yet the word promises me that, no, there's a purpose in it, that God says that in the covenant boundaries, the safe boundaries of a covenant marriage, I want you to enjoy this gift that I've given you in that context. And it was so difficult for us to fight that battle. In fact, the summer, we'd, we'd have to, a year before we were to get married, that summer, three people, three of my friends, met girls, got them pregnant, and everybody was celebrating. I was like, wait a minute. I, th I thought if you do something wrong, you're supposed to feel really bad, feel guilty, and get in trouble. And there was a little bit of that, but they realized that a baby was coming into the world, and all of a sudden, they were having beautiful baby showers, and it's not a bad thing. And all of a sudden, there was a wedding, and people were celebrating. And I thought, why am I trying to hold to God's standards when other people seem to be getting away with it? It's tough to maintain integrity when it feels like the system God you've given us is outdated and broken. Have you felt that way before? This book is 2,000 years old or more. There's got to be a new way. But I'm telling you, Asaph is learning Jesus would ratify it in the new covenant, in the stories that Lucas is going to be sharing in the coming weeks to help us understand what this is all about. And Asaph's telling us there's a different perspective, that God's way is not a difficult way. It's not a bunch of rules that we try to live by and feel bad and live horribly until he comes again. That's not what the Bible's about at all. It's a book of freedom from a God who's in a vantage point that you can't see, and he's helping guide you through your life. Asaph goes on in verse 6 to describe these people. He says, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. These people, you ever do something wrong and get away with it? You kind of go, hey, that wasn't so bad. I'm going to do, yeah, I see the hands are being raised. Yep, that's me. I appreciate that. Yeah, and then you think, next time I'll do that again. And all of a sudden, your confidence begins to grow. You think nothing's going to happen. And ultimately, that road leads you to a place where you start to say, well, there must be no God. There's no consequence for what I'm going through. There must be nothing that's going to happen to me. In verse 10, it goes on and says, therefore, because nothing's happening, people turn their back to them. People turn back to them. A lot of people follow them. They find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? You start to think, logically, there must be no God. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in their riches. Asaph, in his song, is looking around, and he's seeing how people are doing business. 
He's seeing how people are doing their finances, their relationships, their sexuality, their status, their power. And they seem to be getting away with all of this. It's the same in our world today. You look around and who does the world call heroes today? People with athletic prowess. Nothing wrong with that. But we put them up on this pedestal and we just, we want to be like them just for a minute. Or maybe somebody like Elon Musk or Bill Gates, they're so wealthy. And we thought, man, I'd love to do that. I could be philanthropic and impact and change lives if I had money. Or maybe it's a famous actor on the screen and we're like, wow, that would be so cool to be just like Brad Pitt. Or to be like Tom Cruise. Or to be like Neil Montgomery. Whoever you want to be like. I know I'm not close to that. But we look at that, and then, we, and then the celebrities, they start to believe it, right? People of great fame and status actually start to believe their press clippings. And they start to think they have knowledge about areas they have no knowledge about. And so Asaph is just wrestling. Why do they seem to be getting away when, when you promised that you'd be with me always, that I would be walking down this great road of freedom? Where is that? Where is the abundant life? Other people seem to be getting it. You know, I've often asked the question, why do bad things happen to good people? I think it's a question we often think about. Asaph's way past that. He's saying, it's not about why do bad things happen to good people. I, I see that. That's part of it. But he's at crying out to God in this song, as artists are so passionately prone to do. And he's saying, why are great things happening to bad people? And the wrestle is on, just like we might have. And what's hard for those of us who have been followers of Christ, the Bible teaches the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so when we walk away from God, it's no fun. We have this thing called conviction in our lives. That's a good thing. It's designed to bring us back to God. But when we're trying to get away with something, there is a tension there. You ever been there? You ever felt like, man, I just want to bag this. I want to throw in the towel. Asaph understands what we mean. I want to share a few thoughts in the few minutes that we have together today about when we're thinking about giving in. Because all of us have been there. We've all been to the place, even pastors, leaders, missionaries, anyone struggles with the idea and the thought about giving in. First of all, I think we have to address one big lie up front or a myth, and that is the law of linearity. You know what that is? We tend to believe in our world that if I'm a good person, if I do good things, good things are going to happen. Now, raise your hand. Is that, is that true? If you want to come raise your hand. That's, that's pretty true. Yeah, if I'm nice to you, you're going to be nice to me. But it's not always true, right? You've been around long enough to realize that doesn't always equal truth. But we still want to believe that. And so if, if the, the good is not happening that I'm trying to live for, what do we do? We go back here to A and work harder to make B happen. And that's why so many of us are exhausted. Even when we're trying to follow God, we think God's that way. It's easy to translate that if I'm a good person and I'm following God, it would stand to reason good things would happen. And when they don't happen, we're frustrated just like Asaph was. This is what's going on in his song. And so the first point that I want to share with you, I just want to share a few thoughts and some truths, is this. When we focus like Asaph did on others, focusing on others is going to depress us. You know what I'm talking about, Right? Isn't it amazing when we compare to other people? Seldom do we ever compare down to people. Oh, I'm glad I have so much more than my neighbor. I have a nicer, no, we're always looking up. We're always looking up and saying, oh, I wish I had that house in the Muskokas. Boy, man, I, I'd love to drive a car like that, but no, I'm stuck with this Lexus and I'm driving that. We love to compare up. And, and we're, so we're constantly battling depression because we're never satisfied. Do you know in the first 12 verses, for you that I just read, how many times Asaph mentions the word they or them? 
Go ahead and count them, I'll wait. No, I'm just kidding. 17 times. 17 times. Where does that tell us Asaph is focusing as he's expressing himself through this song? He's focusing on other people. Look where he goes in verse 13. He says this. He says, all in vain, I, I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He goes from focusing on others. It leads to depression, to focusing on himself. And focusing on self will disappoint us. That's the second point if you're taking notes. Focusing on yourself, looking at what you don't have, it's so depressing. It's so disappointing. In fact, depending on what version you read, five, four to six times he uses the word I, me, or my in this passage. He's telling God, following you is not paying off. I'm trying to do the right thing. It's not paying off. Over the years, now 30 as a pastor, I've had more people than I can count who sat in my office and said, I'm done. I'm done with this Christian thing. Because they followed it the way Asaph is. They've tried to have faith. They've tried to follow God. And it's not working. In fact, my life is worse now than when I started out on this journey. And what they don't realize yet, what Asaph is going to realize, that God needs to bring us to that place so he can move us through ourself to the hope that we can have in him. Oh, that was a spoiler alert. Asaph's going to go there. And we cry out with Asaph, why are we so worried about obedience when everyone else is coming into these doors and they seem to be enjoying life and giving a rip about God? Asaph has gone from looking at others and being depressed to look at himself and being disappointed. And the world just feeds it. I mean, I don't have to tell you about commercials on TV. I, I was a TV-holic growing up. It was on like a lamp in our house. And, and so when I first got married, I just couldn't have a TV. It wasn't even a spiritual thing. I just, now I turn the TV on, and I have no problem turning it off because I'm sick of commercials, aren't you? This is a rant about commercials. Let's, you know, this is a protest. And they, they come in from the, the, the bottom corner. They're streaming across the bottom at the most beautiful part of a movie. It shouts out at you and says, Thursday at 7, you know, Property Brothers or something like that. And, and, and you're selling stuff all the time designed to do what? To make you depressed, to make you disappointed, to make you not happy with what you have. We know that. We get it, but we still want the watch. Half the time, I don't even know what they're selling. But if I buy it, I'm going to be surrounded by beautiful women, so I'm going to buy it. Or I'm going to have a lot of cool things happen to me. And we still get suckered in. That's why they use that mode, because the, the equation works. The math works. And look where Asaph goes in verse 15. He says, if I told people about this, he's a leader. Remember, he's a leader. He's the Andy standing in front of him. He said, if I, if I will speak thus... Man, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. If Andy or, or Lucas, he got up a few minutes ago and he said, God is so good. Remember? God is so good. He's just not good to me. Can you imagine if he said that? We'd be like, okay, the flight was a little bit long. You need to go home right now. Lights would go down. Andy would come up, close us in prayer. But no, but it happens. It happens. We feel these things in our lives. And look where Asaph goes. But when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Have you ever gone through a trial in your life? And I believe that most of us, or all of us have or will. And that's not a downer. We're just going to go through trials. And you try to understand it. Isn't it exhausting? You're trying to figure out, why did God allow this to happen? Why, did, why am I going through this? Why did I lose that job? Why did I get sick for so long? Why is there such an enmity between my wife and I in our relationship when I'm trying to follow God? Have you been there? Trying to understand that? It's a wearisome task. 
And then the transition, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. This is a pivotal point in the song that he's writing. Asaph's saying, man, if people knew what I was thinking sometimes, they'd be so disappointed in me. They'd be so upset. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Now watch what happens in verse 18, where it goes. He said, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Some people look at this and think, well, there it is. God's a killjoy. Cosmic cop right there. Just, just a wet blanket on everybody's dreams. No, God's saying you have two choices in this life. Follow me, and I'm going to give you hope. And I'm going to give you life beyond this life. I'm going to give you purpose. I'm going to give you meaning. Or don't follow me. And what he's describing in the song is a path of just not following God. It just leads to destruction. It just leads away. It leads to coming to the end of you. And that's how it's designed. It's a binary decision to follow God or follow ourself. And this is what's happening as he enters the sanctuary of God. And so focusing on other people, that can really depress us. And focusing on ourselves can really lead to disappointment. I think we get that. I want to encourage us to understand what happens when we focus on God, when we enter the sanctuary of God. And the first one is this, that when we focus on God, it gives us an eternal perspective. Right? Remember, heaven comes later. And don't forget, God's not saying, you know, be, exist in this life and be depressed and be upset and try to live for me. And by the way, you're not going to be able to do it. And so you're going to be more depressed through life. But you survive and endure that, you've got heaven. So just quit your yapping and look forward to heaven. No, that's not what it's about. It's about coming to an understanding that this life is so temporary. This life is so short. I have one generation that you get to live in. Even King David in the Bible, after he'd fulfilled the purposes of God in his own generation, the Bible says he died. The Bible talks about eternity forever. Eternity before you were born. And why do we struggle putting all of our eggs in the basket of this life? God never told us to do that. We were never exhorted to do that. But you, if you're like me, if you're like Asaph, that's our tendency to say, I'm going to put it all right in here. Do you know that the Bible doesn't guarantee much of anything this side of heaven? So I went back to my verses in John 10. And I look back at my verses in Psalm 37, I realize in that context, God never offers a guarantee. He never guarantees that my marriage is going to be great. God doesn't guarantee that my health is always going to be stellar as it is and it's not. He doesn't guarantee the job you have is going to be fulfilling. He doesn't guarantee that everybody's going to love you. All there is no guarantee, as Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes, under the sun except one thing. The only thing, if you really read this Bible, can bring it down to one promise that God guarantees while we're here on earth, and that is his presence. He said, I will be with you, those of you who put your faith and trust in God, I will be with you always. And when we focus on this life, it's almost always going to lead to us throwing in the towel. Because that's not what God intended. We have to look up and see the bigger picture, that this world is merely temporary. And for people who choose not to follow Christ that Asaph is talking about, this world is as good as it's going to get. This world is what they should pursue to find their satisfaction in here. But God has designed it to never give them the
the satisfaction that they desire. I think it's awfully hard to reject Christ and the more and more I study and more I relate to God. Some of the greatest minds throughout history have studied this Bible inside and out and have determined that the, the origins that are given to the existence of our humanity are very plausible, verifiable. In many ways, they can hold up to any worldview. But we're so quick to reject them when they get in the way of our view of abundant life. But it's plausible. Some of the greatest minds. And then the Word of God not only gives us a plausible reason for our existence, you open up these pages, you know what they tell you? God's life gives you purpose and meaning. Who doesn't want that? I mean, most of the time, if we don't have purpose or cause in our life, we're just living for the weekend. And I've met a lot of people in my 30 years as a pastor, and that gets old pretty fast. Trying to find all your pleasure and the stuff that this world can give is fun for a while. But it gets old because when you put your head on your pillow at night, you're wondering, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. There's got to be more. And I don't know what your journey with God has been like. Perhaps it's like mine. Or maybe it's like Asaph's. Or maybe you're throwing in the towel and you're saying, I'm just going to live however I want anyway. Do you know it's God's design for you to be disappointed in this life? I love the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon, arguably historians outside of Scripture, would tell us he was the wisest man that ever lived. Historians, people would come from all over and they would bring Solomon vast amounts of money that also made him the wealthiest man that ever lived in today's dollars. People have tried to quantify just how much gold he had, and they stopped when they got in the trillions in today's dollars. And that was just his gold. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. He was the wealthiest man that ever lived. And he set out to live however he wanted, to find all of his value in this life. And you know what he discovered? Nothing in this world satisfies and God said, put those 12 chapters in the Bible. That's good Bible. Because there's going to be a little church at Bayview Glen in Toronto that's going to hear these words. And they might learn from Solomon. Solomon says, I didn't withhold anything. I wanted wine, women, and song. I took it all. I created vast gardens and architecture, some of which still stands today. And he kept coming to the same conclusion. It's not satisfying. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. There's nothing new under the sun. And you know what the kicker is? We all die. Isn't that enough to make you raise your fist at God and say, this is what it's all about? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He says the fool and the wise men, they suffer the same fate. They all go to the grave. Why bother? Solomon, wisest guy that ever lived, figured out that this world will stir up a thirst in you that nothing in this world can satisfy. This world stirs up a thirst. That's a good thing. But why would God be so mean is to allow nothing in this world to satisfy. Because God is trying to stir up within us that there is so much more. Plausible reason for where you came from, purpose and meaning for your life. And as if it wasn't the cherry on top of the most amazing Sunday you could ever imagine tasting, he says, you have eternity with me. Well, Revelation tells us he will wipe away every tear. And we are ushered into his presence for eternity and so this world, this temporary world, is a glimpse. It's a taste of what is to come. The marriage relationship and all the things to enjoy. God says, that's just a taste. You think that's good? You ever stand on a cliff and look at a beautiful sunset? You think that's amazing? Just wait to see what I have for you. Eternity is coming, and I'm giving you a taste, a glimpse of what is for you as you walk with me. But for those who don't follow God, it's as good as it gets. We enter the sanctuary of God and we begin to understand, try to understand, putting all of our own stuff aside. 
we get an eternal perspective. This life is short. We're not going to live it. We're all going to have our own celebration of life or memorial service at some point with your picture on a screen. People will try to say good things about you. And is that all? No, there's more, the Bible says, and that's a beautiful thing. He goes on in verse 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and I was ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. What's going on here in verses 21 and 22? Yeah, focusing on God shows us an eternal perspective, but it also shows us who we really are. It's like a mirror. You hold this up and you realize, man, did I really look like that? Now with, you know, like video cameras, people can see really how goofy you look like when you're cutting people off in traffic. You're like, that wasn't me. I didn't do that. Yeah, well, here's a video right now to prove it. And you're like, wow. Boy, if we could see how goofy we look sometimes, trying to be our own person, trying to be right all the time, why we'd shift gears pretty fast. That's what the Bible does. Asaph's saying, when I, when I came to you, God, and I opened up your word, and I entered the sanctuary, and I spent time with you alone, you and I, God, vertical focus, you really showed me who I really was, who I looked like. And he said, I was a brute beast when I focused on my immediate desires, my temporary needs. God, I'm learning this world was never about me, and I'm going to find my greatest satisfaction when I make it all about you. Yet there are people who will still cash it all in. I was asking a mentor of mine the other day, why, if Solomon was the wisest guy that ever lived, why did he still mess up in Ecclesiastes? Why did he still mess up? He said the simplest of answers. He said wisdom and obedience are two different things. And I went, oh, yeah, I love ketchup potato chips. I'm going to leave here today, and I'm going to go to Loblaws, and I'm going to buy a big bag of ketchup potato And you know what I'm going to do? I am not going to share them with you. I'm going to consume them. And I will. I can eat a whole bag. And I'm going to feel lousy after I eat the whole bag of ketchup potato chips. I know that it's not good for me. I have wisdom that that would not be good for me, but I'm still going to eat them. Well, I confessed it now, so I probably won't. But I would have done it if you weren't listening or watching in all these things. Wisdom and obedience are two different things when we focus on ours. But how many of us have just been willing Jokingly, the ketchup potato chips, well, what is your bag of chips? Maybe you sold out for that one relationship you thought was going to bring you meaning and you lost everything. Maybe you married your work and you realized you lost a family. Maybe you decided I was going to go all in and chase the almighty buck. And now I don't have a single relationship left. How many people have realized they threw it all in and then they looked like a brute beast? And again... What you're going to see is that Asaph says it's a good thing. To come to the awareness through that, what you look like brings us back to God. Look what he says in verse 23. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. At the beginning of this passage, he's talking about I and me and them and they. And now he's transitioned in the song and all he's talking about is you. Focusing on God gives us an eternal perspective. Focusing on God reveals to us who we really are. Another thing is focusing on God will show us who he really is. It shows us who he really is. You know, God is a God who is a God of forgiveness. All he wants is you. He said, if you put your faith and trust in me, I'm not asking you to work like a scorecard or a report card. I have declared you right. I knew when I put the law out there to tell you to be perfect, you couldn't do it. And I did that to awaken within you the desire for me. 
that I am perfect, and that's still my demand for you. There's a punishment, eternal death apart from God because we can't, but I'm going to pay the price for you. And because of your faith and trust in Christ, I'm going to declare you right. Theologians call it justified. And now I want to invite you to walk with me in relationship. See, God doesn't love us out of some obligation. God actually likes us. I mean, people say, well, I love you because I have to love you. But when someone says, I like you, isn't that a little different? That means I'd like to have dinner with you twice, right? When people like us, this is what's happening to Asaph. Look where he goes. He says in verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing else on earth that I desire besides you. Can you say that in your own life? Can you say that, boy, I just value God more than anything? I'm not there yet. I want to be there. And Asaph paints a beautiful picture of somebody who's so authentic, who's in such a real place, saying, man, I almost bailed on all of this. I almost threw in the towel completely. I wanted to give up so badly until I entered the sanctuary of God, and I realized as I grew in my relationship with him that his presence was always the best thing ever anyway. Now everything else just seems like a peanut butter sandwich when God's offering me a steak dinner buffet or an incredible vegetarian buffet for those who don't do meat. God is all about that. Can you imagine if God said to you today, I want to give you that abundant life. If God had said to me, I want to give you the desires of your heart, do you think I would say, I'd say, yeah, I'm in. He said, I'm going to give you a great wife. I'm going to give you incredible kids who all grow up to marry, become doctors and marry missionaries and to be a beautiful thing. And it just be incredible. Would I sign up for that? Yeah. And if God said, I'll give you all of that, but I'm not going to be a part of it. Do you think I would still sign up for that? You know the scary answer, the haunting answer, I think? I think I might. Because when I'm honest with myself, sometimes I love what God gives more than I love the giver. Can you relate to that? See, we define God moving in my life if things are going good. And when I'm honest, that's what happens in my life. Say, God, you are good because the paycheck came in. You are good because I'm feeling good. The moment the sun goes away, it's not sunny, there's no money, my nose is runny, I just made that up right on the spot. I, I, could, write a, I could write a psalm, maybe. Can we put that to music, Andy? The moment things go bad in my life, I begin to struggle. I thought, maybe, no, not maybe. I don't really get what Asaph's saying right now. That perhaps, as I go through this life, I see God more like a genie in the bottle than I do a God who loves me and just wants me to value his presence over every other thing in my life. I love the gifts that God has given me. I love the life that God's given me. I'm learning to embrace even the trials that God has allowed to come into my life. You know, Jesus said, one of the verses in John 16, 33, one of the things that now is on a, a mug or a plaque or a card, Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. How was that for a downer? In this world, you're going to have trouble. I, I don't know how I missed that when I was reading. I just like to read the good stuff. Tear that one out. In this world, you have trouble? No, not that. I like the good stuff. But Jesus is trying to give us perspective because he ends that verse by saying, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. And could it be that I call myself a follower of Christ? And the simple reason I'm still struggling is I'm not saying don't struggle. I'm not saying don't feel pain. I'm not saying don't even desire the paycheck and the health. That's okay. But like C.S. Lewis says, we need to keep that as a second thing. We need to hold it with an open hand saying, God, these are promises you might have given or these are gifts or blessings you might have given, but they're not guarantees in my life. I need to see it as that. 
And perhaps I'm coming to a place where I simply realize that I just don't know God well enough yet to realize that he's all that I need. And so like Jesus in John 15, 11 times, Jesus says, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. You cut a branch off, it's not going to survive. You stay in me, in me, 11 times, in me. Do you think he was trying to get something across to us? Asaph realized it in Psalm 73. Solomon realized it in Ecclesiastes 12. He said, at the end of all things, it was fear God and keep his commands. It was never about chasing and pursuing things that can never deliver. Sin will always take you further than you want to go, hold you there longer than you want to stay, and cost more than you'll ever want to pay. But it always promises so much and delivers so little in our lives. You know, the beautiful thing is God says, I always invite you back. I want to invite you back. And so focusing on God in verse 26, as we wrap up, he goes on and he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, we will fail, but, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that, am I that I may tell of all your works. And so lastly, focusing on God is going to show us what we really have. What we truly have on God, and God is enough. As a pastor, I walk with people through so many trials. I stop trying to fix people, give them verses, make them feel better, make sure they liked me when they left. I realize it's not my deal to change a heart, but my deal to walk with people through life and point them to Christ. Two questions I want to leave with you as you are here today and you're thinking. The first question is this. How do you measure God's blessings? Do you measure his blessings by prosperity? Things are going well? Or by my closeness to him? How do I measure that? I, I'm going to tip my hat to you. I have struggled with this my whole life. I measured it by being a good pastor. I'd measure it if I met with you. Like I said, I'd give you some things to help fix your life. Send you on your way smiling with maybe a bunch of things to do. And made sure that you liked me. And then I was just setting you up for disaster because when I make you work for God, you're going to get exhausted and you're going to be back. It was a Messiah complex, the need to be needed. And i got to tell you, as a pastor, I am repenting of that over and over. See, God doesn't promise to take away the storms in our life. Sometimes he simply calms you in the midst of the storm because of his presence. That's the promise that I can take all the way to the bank. And as I endure, as James says, consider it joy when you go through various trials, knowing the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance, as it does its work, makes us complete, lacking nothing. Isn't a beautiful verse? People say, well, that's a whacked out writer to say, why do you have fun in trials? Because James had the perspective that Solomon had, that Asaph got to. It said that God is enough. I can go through the most incredible trial in my life, and I wish we had time to tell the stories here, but we don't, of people who have leaned into God through the darkest moments, and they've gotten to a place in their relationship with God that, that they couldn't have gotten to any other way. You see, what dark moments are designed to do is to bring you to the end of you. To bring you to a place where you give up the right to control the outcomes of your life. And Asaph and Solomon and Jesus said that is the best place to be. Because when you come to the end of you, you're going to see my power perfected in you. Paul would say it this way, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Paul, who was a great healer, healed a guy who landed out of a window because he was a boring preacher in Acts and raised him from the dead. Couldn't even help Timothy. He said, take a little wine for your ailments. Couldn't even heal himself. He said, I was given this thorn 
to remind me that in my weakness, his strength is perfected. To keep him humble, to keep him focused. And as you walk through the trials of your life, God's saying, I want you to value in an increasing measure the blessing of my presence, not just my presence with a T, the gifts that I give you. And God is bringing us to that place where we give up the right to control the outcomes, and now we walk with him, whether I get a diagnosis of an terminal illness tomorrow, or I live for another 40 years and become the most philanthropic person known to man, God's saying, just give up the right to control. How do you measure God's blessings in your life? And the last one is this. How is God a daily focus for you? You know, for me, I used to get so busy just being a pastor, busy for God, I forgot how to commune with God. And I about cashed in my own marriage at one point. I about lost uh, my kids still to this day are saying, Dad, I, I love God. I just, I just hate church. You know why? Because church stole their dad. Because every time church was open, I thought I had to be there. And the only thing it about cost me is a relationship with my kids and my, my marriage on its own. And now I'm living differently. Because God's a forgiving God. And when my feet had almost slipped, I was able, I'm still learning along with you, to enter the sanctuary of God. Here's how I do it every day. Not legalistically, not a rule, not religion. I just create space for God. Maybe an hour. I just put it in my calendar. I'm intentional about it. Every seven weeks, I take a day. I call it a Sabbath day. And when I started doing the Sabbath days, I used to try to fill it with, like, good reading and Bible reading and, and try to pray to God. And, and now you know what I'm doing? I'm just being still and trying to listen. Sometimes I'll go for a drive or a hike, but I take a day. And it's not a, my day off. I don't want to rob my wife of that, though she might like me not to be there. But it's a day just to cease from doing the things that are necessary in our lives. I take a Sabbath day. The last thing I do is I, I found a godly man, somebody who's living this life and doing it far greater than I ever am. You know what I did? I hooked my wagon up to Jerry. My friend Jerry, I meet with him every Monday and every Thursday. And Jerry doesn't try to fix me. He doesn't try to give me a verse and send me on my way. I don't think Jerry cares if I like him at all. But Jerry wants to spend time with me because he likes me. And Jerry's only role is to spend time with me. And as I'm whining and going through life with the hardship, his only goal is to lift my chin and help me focus on God again. Because yes, even as a pastor, leaders, struggling Christians in our life, we battle wanting to throw in the towel. And God says, persevere through this and I will be with you. It's an incredible promise. Why is this important? Why is this important to us? Because the culture that we live in encourages us to hide our shame. Even in the church, people feel they can't come when there should be a pathway to freedom, to sharing the hardest points of our lives when we throw in the towel. Maybe you're here this morning, maybe you've thrown in the towel. You know, the beautiful thing, the only thing about God's word is he always shows a way back. God is a redeeming God. 1 John 1.9 says if we confess with our mouth, right? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. And he will forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan is an accuser. He'll try to shine like an angel of light, make everything seem so promising, and he'll deliver nothing but a boatload of shame that you'll be hanging on to for your whole life until you finally say, God, I give this up to you, and I'm all in. God meets you right where you are. And he gives you enough to take one step of faith at a time. That's why I love Psalm 119, 105. It says, your word is what? A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my... It's not a floodlight. God says a lamp gives you just enough light to take the next right step. And then what does it do? 
lights up the next step. Because God wants us, when we don't understand, to trust that he's showing us the way. One step at a time. And we all matter to God. And could it be that we just simply don't know him well enough yet to realize he's all we need. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for Bayview Glen Church. Thank you for the people, real people, with real problems following a real God. And God, to a person in here, we have real battles just like Asaph. And sometimes those battles can heap so much shame on us that we feel that we can't match up. That we're not worthy to sit here. But God, we're worthy because you made us worthy. May we understand that in a new way today. May you set us free from the chains that bind us, that keep our focus on this life, only this life. And Father, as we fully surrender to you, not partial surrender or surrender the way we define it, as we come to the end of ourselves, truly the end, may we realize the beauty of your presence is greater than anything we can imagine or hope for. And the joy of living out your purposes here on this earth and the joy of looking forward to eternity with you, may that drive us each and every moment of each and every day. And may you be praised. May you be honored. And may you be glorified in all of that. And we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.